first of all, it's my 50th birthday today. Shit. Happy birthday. But th- this, is, this makes it special. It's a half a, half a century. I mean, I surf with a guy who's like 66. He's been surfing his whole life and surfs very well. And I feel like, hey, you know, it's 20 years away. If I'm still doing it. Yeah, be surfing for another 20 years at least. It doesn't you can, always have to be, you know, hospital and death, does it? Yeah. It's not 65 and then no. pop off instantaneously. Oh, we're recording. Okay. Just what is it that you want to do? You got it. Come on. Here we go. You know, building a music playlist is hard enough, let alone the perfect festival. How are you guys doing? But that is exactly what we've asked some of the most fantastic and interesting people I know to do. And the result? One, two. It's all lols, backstage festivals, goss, and ridiculously good music recommendations from this point on, really. I'm Sean Keaveney, your host, and give it up for the lineup. Absolutely brilliant. We've got to call it something. Natalie, any ideas? Song and the Source. Well, I mean, we're, we're struggling, aren't we? Let's be honest. <laughs> we are. We are struggling. Yeah. I'm thinking. I got now. I got hung up on Sauce. <laughs> Our next guest is the singer and the guitarist and bassist, actually, in one of the most influential bands to cascade out of the American Guitar Band Revival of the early noughties. Yes, I called it the American Guitar Band Revival of the early noughties. From now on, everyone else will too. They specialise in dark and sombre, shade rather than light, incredible chords, sartorial sharpness, cheekbones. There have been six albums out in the wild with a seventh, The Other Side of Make Believe, imminent. As well as that, this guest has minted some great solo work, not least an album with Wu-Tang's RZA, Banks and Steel, Muzz with members of Walkman and Fleet Foxes. And I think he's a hot wing enthusiast. We'll come, in, we'll come on to that in a minute. I give you Interpol's Paul Banks. What a great intro. Hi there. Was that veracity? Was, was there anything that you want to pull me up on there that I got wrong? Or? I was wondering about cheekbones, but I think Daniel does have some nice, <laughs> some nice cheekbones. I never really understood cheekbones. I mean, obviously I don't have any. I mean, I just, I, I've almost got like a wonton face now. You know, it's like... Like the dumpling yeah, wonton, right? Like where are the bones? Mm. You know, they're in there somewhere though. Um... And we should, just for the interest, the interest of full disclosure for the listeners, couple of things. This is my 50th birthday, the day that we're doing this. So this is an auspicious event and occasion. I'm stoked to share it with you, Paul. Oh, I'm honoured. And we're in, we're in the St. Martin's Lane Hotel Basement Bar. Wow. But we're not, I mean, it's not like, like it might have been in the noughties or something. We might have had, been lining up a few drinks. We've been extremely professional today. Yes. Coffee it is. Happy 50th. Thank you. Thanks very much. First of all, what's it, what's it been like all these years living under the, the shadow of the other Paul Banks, the bass player out of Mosque? It must, that, it must be annoying whenever you do an interview. It's like, oh. It does. It comes up often. Yeah, it's a, it's a looming shadow yeah. to be trapped in. <laughs> What's the band Mosque? I know, don't even ask. It's pathetic. But, you know, we, we still get together and we, we subject people to our music, but they're always friends and family, you know. What kind of music is it? We, we, it's, very, it's almost impossible to describe. It's so eclectic. I would say it's bad indie pop. Oh, okay. So, you know, that kind of thing. I wouldn't be too threatened if I were you. <laughs> right. But then again, Paul is an excellent bass player and we'll come on to your bass playing 
in a little while. That sort of surprised me, actually. Obviously, I I imagine you up there on stage in a black suit with a black Les Paul mm. and singing, but bass has become your primary instrument in the band, I think, in recent times, has I mean, it? Or have you just done it when recording, really? I mean, it's I don't I don't play the bass live. I do it on the recordings okay. and the rehearsals, yeah. But in the sense that the songs really take on their identity primarily nowadays with me on bass, I guess it it is in a way my primary instrument. I still you know see myself as a guitar player, but I write the guitar parts now after I've written the bass lines. And I think especially on this most recent record, it began on the last one. I've been trying to like make as much happen with as little as possible on the guitar. So I feel like kind of covering a lot of ground on the bass so that its songs sound good even without my guitar. And then when I go to write some guitar parts, I'm just not overdoing it. I'm just I'm just yeah. really putting it where I feel like it is really going to have a big impact. So It's the icing on the cake then, isn't it, I suppose? Or it's a little bit like what a keyboard would be if we were a full four-piece still. Yeah. Because technically, you know, now we're a three-piece and like my guitar parts become almost like the keyboard parts. Like a... The color. Extra the, bit. The texture. Yeah. Yeah, or just that little extra like oomph when the chorus drops, for instance, or a little sound effect in a verse. Would you? I'm going too deep, too quick into basing here, but when you were growing up, was it guitar all the way, or did you dabble in other instruments as well? I first played saxophone. Hmm. Pretty, I played alto sax when I was like ten, eleven, and pretty seriously, I had like a, I was in the school band, and then I had a private teacher and I was learning jazz sax with a with a private teacher for a few years and then yeah as adolescence came on I switched to guitar when I was about 12 12 13 as one does and it, that's a bit Bowie isn't it I suppose David was a I said David then as though I'd ever met him but he was a he was a sax guy wasn't was he? he before anything else I think I didn't even know that yeah no. so you shared that it was funny my, it was like my my mom was mad about sax I'm English, by the way, and so I well, say I say mom sometimes. But uh, yeah, she was the one who really got me into sax playing. She was like, <laughs> I think it was, I don't know if it was generational, but she thought it was like the coolest instrument. And I think even then I was like, I mean, I like playing it, but are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> are you sure that all the girls are going to love this? <laughs> all the Ramones know, fans are really going to dig this. Yeah. But hey. Because I guess, was she then coming from that sort of, Miles Davis, Coltrane. I know Miles Davis no. didn't play saxophone. Don't start me off on that. No, you know she was I mean, coming though? from more moody blues and stuff. So mm, no, okay. I don't even know. <laughs> I don't even know where, she, why she, but anyway, I do really enjoy. I was actually thinking just just yesterday that I wouldn't mind picking up a sax again. Mm, that could be another texture on, on the next record. <sighs> Can you imagine sax in an indie rock, in an Interpol song? This we've got to hear. Yeah. No, we've you see, this is what this is all about. But the just, fun, I'm sorry, but the funny part would be it would be like shitty sax. That's the <laughs> other dimension to it. It would not even be good. It would just be sax. Just a real bl a sort of blaring sort of noise. I like that that is the album title as well, Shitty Sax. Yeah. I love that. Album eight, Shitty Sax. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned this as well. It's two things off the bat that I think that would surprise a lot of people listening. Paul plays the sax. That's surprising. Paul's English. That's much more surprising. I, I honestly didn't know that. Hmm. Is this why, is there a little bit of, well, obviously in your DNA, because I, when I think about the sound of Interpol, there's the exotica of the fact that you, you seem like a New York band to somebody like me and the sort of like American version of the indie scene, to use reductive terms. But 
it seems like a lot of Manchester in you, a lot of Joy Division, a lot of Ian Curtis in the voice. Is that because you're English, basically, do you think? Um, I don't know. I think we had the stylistic similarities with that era and that sort of like area in the beginning. I think Carlos in particular was like a real big Joy Division fan and real New Order, probably even more so fan. I don't know really what to say there as far as the similar, because it's not really, for me, I guess I do, as far as British bands from that age, I kind of like The Cure would be mm. my personal go-to, kind of like as an as an influence even, or as a conscious influence. Yeah. I'll like say. that disintegration, that sort of darkness and the... It's I mean, a lot of like kind of British music from that era. I like Joy Division, I think, more than New Order. And I like The Cure, but there's other types of like Depeche Mode didn't speak to me when I was younger. Now it does more. I think kind of, I've just always gravitated to more edgy things. And there's something about The Cure, like despite it being kind of very, I don't know, like this edge to The Cure that yeah. I've always had a sense of like, there's just this edginess in there that I, that speaks to me. Um and same with Joy Division, there's an edge there. And so I kind of historically have looked at my influences being more like Velvet Underground, Pixies, Nirvana, things like that, than, than British Manchester bands. Yeah. But, you know. It's just weird how it all comes out, all the influences. Well, and then I think it's not just like how my voice sounds or what our band was trying to do or what I was trying to do as a singer in the beginning of our career, which I think invited all those comparisons, but it's also just like as a band, how we inform each other. Mm. You know, it's like there's never been an aspiration to sound any particular way. We just, our mixed influences came together to be what it was and what it is now. Well, that, I, I love you described it in the past and it's, it sounds like the perfect description of a well, a good working band because each musician has their own obsessions, their, their own influences, and it could be film, it could be books as well, it could be anything. It could be sports, I don't know. It all, and that's your your own sort of well of inspiration. And then you bring them together and then the magic happens, I suppose, doesn't it? It's yeah. that interplay. That, yeah, it's that chemistry. Yeah, it's, it's lovely to hear. The Interpol interplay, you see. Rubbish that, wasn't it? Take that one out. Um, but we, you mentioned, so we mentioned the fact that, you know, you were, you, you're born in this country and you, you've straddled the globe, obviously, a bit of a peripatetic childhood. We need to place this fantasy festival somewhere in the world, Paul. So where should we put it? Ooh. I know, it's a real curveball when it comes. Yeah, that's a really good one. Where do you do your surfing, by the way? In Panama. Mm. That's how we say it, Panama. That is even more exotic than yeah. St. Ives. Or Panama. <laughs> Panama. Panama. I love that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, the accent's on the last A. Panama. It's so the Central America, Pacific Coast. They, there's surf on the Caribbean side as well, but I don't surf that side. That's the... For the surfers out there that have, you know, heard of Panama, they're probably thinking the Caribbean side, Bocas del Toro, but I go to the Pacific side. Is, the, is it just bigger action there it's more that a, a family friend took me to the region and then i fell in love with it mm. that's why but also yeah it's like bocas del toro is very full of like very you know experienced surfers and more crowded beaches and and i think a few more high level waves um and where i go it's a more inconsistent wave with much much less tourism and much less surfers but mm. it's like a it's a heavy beach break it's pretty pretty heavy beach actually but not actually all that desirable for most surfers. But you just like the, the general 
the, I love the, the water. The I love the, the environment. I love the fact that, yeah, it's uh, close to an old friend of mine. Yeah, fucking paradise, dude. Crazy about it. You probably, would you want then to put your festival? festival no. So no, to answer your question, no. no. That would ruin it. It'd probably. be pretty. And also like, if you're in the water, then it's nice, but it's hot as fuck <laughs> down there, man. Uh, it's right. It's close to the equator, actually. Mm. So festival wise, that's a tough one. Because I mean, even though the climate is pretty brutal, I feel like Britain to me just does, you know, feel like the essential like home of music festivals. So I'm maybe England. Mm. And then another part of me feels that like, you know, in where's Pukelpop or Roskilde? Where's Roskilde? Roskilde is Denmark, isn't it? All the, yeah. Because it reminds me a little bit of, because you must have played hundreds of festivals in the band yeah. over the years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is it? Is it is it just like a, a procession of backstage areas with slightly differing sizes of dressing room or does each have its own special magic, you know, or is it somewhere in between? I think, yeah, it is a little bit of how nice the backstages are and I think Roskilde and Pukelpop, if memory serves, are very nice and comfortable for the artists back there but then it's also the kind of like the way the crowd is situated and the energy of the crowd mm. as well a lot of those festivals I think about like it's daytime shows which is also kind of a weird thing but when you have 20,000 excited people in the middle of the day it's actually also a great rock and roll experience mm. which that's been something I think kind of counterintuitive in Interpol's history is that people assume that we sort of like dark intimate venues with the moody lighting etc and I've always felt like, yeah, I mean, ideally that is great. But to me, there is this wonderful history and heritage of like rock shows in the day. Yeah. You know, when I think about Woodstock, I don't think mm. about nighttime. So I kind of feel like we're also just a rock band. Yeah. So we don't need, you know, the dark and the lights and shit. It's also just like, give us some amps and a crowd. <laughs> and I feel like we'll do the thing. So I don't know. I have pretty fond memories of all those festivals. So let's just say, I'll give you a curveball. It's in Amsterdam. Boom. Lovely. You see, this is the thing with the, the lineup. Sometimes you just got to decide. Yeah. And then it's like, then it's the thing. Amsterdam, the Netherlands, for all kinds of reasons, it's a great rock and roll place and a wonderful place for a festival. We'll find a lovely field. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm, go I'm going to say 50,000. Easy. So let's do it. It feels like that feels like it will bounce nicely. Yeah. Okay. Put a little lake nearby too. A little lake. People can do a little bit of boating during the day. I daytime. like the boating. Yeah. Yeah. I love that rowing, stuff. Rowing, rowing oh. the lake. Have you ever played the Latitude Festival? Yeah. So that's nice, isn't it? Yeah. That kind it of vibe. Is. Yeah. So that we'll nick a bit of that. We need to name it something. Mm -hmm. I've I've written down river banks if it's on a river, or if there's a lot of break beat, break the banks, but that's all I've got. So Mm -hmm. it's not, there's not much to go on there, but mm -hmm. if you've got mm -hmm. any ideas, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what we usually do now is we circle back to it at the end. Yeah, maybe let's circle back. And under pressure, we always come up with it. Okay. So let's let's move on and let's build this festival. We start with the Dawn Chorus and we're going to choose the first act in a minute. But just before we get to that, when you were a kid, which musician inspired you to start playing you know who did did you used to pretend to be someone in the mirror kind of thing was there was there a rock star or a person who first inspired you I mean I feel like my performance style would sort of indicate like an, an interesting insight which is that no I didn't ever do the the mirror thing which I feel like all adds up <laughs> you know I didn't practice sense. my rock star moves never and I feel like something tells me like Mick Jagger did do you know what I mean like, I think depending on who you're talking to, it's like it, that never was the focus for me. I think, uh, 
Nirvana is why was the band that finally made me made my choice that this was the career I wanted to pursue when I was 15. I decided like that's, you know, when, when the guidance counselor would say, what do you want to do? I'd say, I want to be a rock star. And I think they'd look at me like, you know, that's okay, jackass, you know, like, <laughs> get out of, get out of my office. But I felt like, Hey, it's, you know, that's the truth, right? You got to dare to dare to dream. So it was anyway. And so I think, you know, Kurt certainly wasn't, you know, jumping around the stage mm. and, you know, strutting his stuff and stuff. He just kind of like, there was a focus there. And I think that sort of just spoke to me kind of like the, you know, my energy's in the song and I don't, I have no skepticism towards like uh, performers that like really perform, but I feel like that's something that's very natural to them and very innate. And they yeah. were the guys that were, or girls that were standing in front of the mirror or people and, yeah. and working on their moves and stuff. And I think I've just like been working with my ears yeah. uh, as an artist. So that's sort of a secondary thing, the the actual performance aspect. I think I was obsessed with music from my, my whole life. And then I remember I got a classic rock collection album when I was like 11. And the song Dream On by Aerosmith was the one that made me pick up a guitar and say like, I want to, I love this song so much that I want to get closer to it somehow. And like the only way I could imagine to get close to it was actually like perform it. And then a few years later, Nirvana broke. And that was when I said, okay, like I yeah. want to be like that. I wonder what else on that classic rock album. Would it have been like Boston and more than a feeling and all, all, all those classics? It was more, no, it was more like um, fucking uh, Leonard Skinner, uh, okay. Smoke on the Water. Yeah, yeah. That kind of stuff. Deep Purple. But you've never been, I, I seem to remember reading you, one of those people who learned loads of other people's songs. No. It was not, no. It was not your thing, <laughs> no, was no. it? I'm a, yeah, I don't know, man. I don't have like discipline in any conventional <laughs> way. I mean, once I get obsessed with something, I do it really rigorously, but that was never learning other people's songs. It was, I never learned all of Dream On. I just learned like bits of it. And then I got a book of chords. And as soon as I started learning chords, I just started like writing my own stuff. And then similar, I, I learned like Angie and some like Rolling Stones Angie. And I learned some Neil Young songs. Yeah, okay. But uh, really only a few songs, really. What I love about that story is though that you not vocalized it, but it's like... I'm not going to learn other people's songs. Other people are going to learn my song, which is quite cool. <laughs> Check one. Testing. Is everybody ready yet? We good? Let the day begin. Um, okay, I've stalled enough. It's time to introduce onto the stage in Amsterdam, in this idyllic field. It's very early in the morning. Who's going to be the first act to take the stage? And we got five bands, right? We got so. five, living or dead, change your mind at any time. They can collaborate if they want. Well, I have, them, I have it written in an in a arbitrary order when I did a little brainstorm, and I, but I'm looking at it and I'm kind of like, I don't know, maybe that's the order. So... We'd start off with Sonic Youth. <laughs> I always make a really stupid noise, it seems to me, whenever anybody announces an act. Oh, Maybe that should be the way it should, I should introduce them on stage. Good noise, I like. <laughs> yeah. So you, you mentioned Nirvana already as your gateway drug into rock and roll, really, proper. So when did Sonic Youth come into the picture and what is it about them that made them one of your top five? So Sonic Youth, I think, may have been 
it was probably the same time as Nirvana, but like in an interesting way because they had the song 100% came out right around the time that probably Nirvana was breaking. So I know Nirvana was opening for Sonic Youth before the Nirvana broke and probably on maybe their out al- maybe it was even the album cycle that 100% was on. Um and anyway, that was like a video that had like skaters and there was just like something about it that was like, this is fucking cool. And then as I got older, I went back and like listened to, you know, Daydream Nation and Evol and Goo. And I just think that that's really one of the most important rock, you know, guitar rock artists mm. ever. And I think, uh, yeah, they kind of have that sort of like, there's these qualities that I, re- that I really look for in my rock music historically. Like, you know, when I talk about the Pixies or the bands or... Part of the thing that like influences has always been like a bit of a hairy topic for me because I feel like the artists that I feel have had a massive influence on me never come up in yeah. the conversation. And I feel like almost because the debt that I feel or the passion I feel for the artists that like are my conscious, like massive influences, it's like a very special thing. So there's just things that they did with their guitar sounds and kind of like atmospherics and tension uh, and dissonance, dissonance and melody. I think they're kind of like, yeah. what, better, what better artist to sort of point at to look at dissonance and melody? My Bloody Valentine's another good yeah. one. The pedal board of Kevin Shields. Yeah, also, all. yeah, what I've heard from working with Alan Mulder and stuff is like about Kevin Shields is really fascinating. Really? That guy's a real, you know, obsessive kind of guy who knows exactly what he wants. I imagine him to be like a, I mean, I'm going to use a phrase now, but like a sonic wizard. Yeah. Like somebody who's a bit like, a bit of a Hendrix sort of vibe in a sense you know it's very complicated to make noise as beautiful as that I think yeah and it it? sounds like that and it's also because it's like there's a chaos of like unbelievable volume levels that somehow coalesces into like very musical pleasant wall of sound thing like like, Jay Maskis does it as well doesn't he I think yeah he's a guitar legend guitar whiz but again yeah those (laughs) well you work at, at similar volumes but like it's it's an incredible gift, actually, to be able to harness that, isn't it? Mm. It can be quite, in the wrong hands, it can be a horrible thing. I think what is interesting, in our, I mean, in our band, I think Daniel and I managed to be kind of like, it's like one guitar split into two players a lot of times, you know? like Because it feels like Daniel plays, I, I love, Daniel seems to play a lot of arpeggiated melody. Yeah. And then it's, it's a bit Mick and... Mick and Mick or Mick and you know the the guitar weaving that the Stones do you mm. you guys do a little bit of that as well mm. I feel yeah well that's nice yeah thank you but I do think yeah there's like that's what I mean about there's space there it's not like uh, one guitar occupying like your entire mix it's like you know Daniel's occupying a piece and like yeah some I feel like I also like the idea that sometimes you can't really tell who is who yeah or that it is even two guitars at times I think that that's an interesting point because when I was being a legendary, semi-legendary guitar player myself, sorry, quasi-legendary, but coming up through the influences, it always used to disturb me a little bit and still does actually to this day that I I don't really know who's playing what on some records. Mm. You know, it it sort of annoys me. I wish that there was some way of labelling every riff and every guitar line so I knew exactly which one you were playing, for instance, and well, which one, you know, whatever it is. I think it's, it's only been on a few of the more recent records that we stopped doing it, but I believe Daniel and I are usually in one or the other channel. Like, that looks yeah. all right. Yeah. That's, that's a nice... So uh, I'm always on one side and he's always on one side, at least in the early records. It's like Ant and Deck listeners, for the UK listeners, you want 
It's a different thing. I also believe for a diehard fan, I, you know, I believe in my mind that it's very clear who is who. Yeah. If you're a super fan, I believe that it's easy to know who is who. But for a casual casual listener, I would imagine it's probably diff- more difficult. And it's probably a very small segment of the super fans that really can know. But because I'm doing it, I just tell myself like, oh, it's so obvious that <laughs> this is me and that's Daniel. Like, I clearly. always feel like you tend to to give a, a more a, a rhythmic and chordal undertow and Daniel sprinkles more arpeggiated things on top of it. That's in my brain what's happening. But maybe you, maybe do you think you mix that up though? I mean, I think one way to look at it is like he's at least in the later ones, essentially like the song is coming from him and the sort of like sauce is coming from me. I like that. The song and the sauce. And there's an awful lot of hot sauce with somebody like Lee Ronaldo or Kim Gordon. And these guys are just making such an unbelievable noise in Sonic Youth. It's a great way to start a festival as well, I think, because it's like a a Bloody Mary or something, isn't it? It's Mm going to get the blood running. Yeah, it can wake them up. Immediately. Just a quick quick question about when you were coming up back in the early noughties, it it felt from over here to the relatively casual observer that it was like a time where obviously you had people like the yeah, yeah, yeahs, you had the strokes, you know, you sort of had the white stripes as well. Could you feel it happening? Did you feel that you were part of a movement in a sense, uh, an, an uprising of this this kind of music or was it, were you completely separate from it? I mean, I've always, I think my personality is one where I feel like an outsider no matter what. So I didn't feel like, here we go. You know, there's a movement. Yeah. I mean, White Stripes were breaking well before we were breaking. And it was just like, uh, definitely a sense of awe where like there was, I remember there was a few artists at the time where it was like, it sort of defies your ability to kind of comfortably say like, I get it, I know what they're doing. And it was much more like, whoa, fuck, man. It's like magic is happening. Like how is there some artist out there that is this well-realized and like knows exactly what they're doing and they're doing it so stylishly and so completely. So they were like that. I remember Andrew WK was an artist that was like really befuddling where it was like, is this guy being ironic? And, or is he being serious or is it, you know, what is this party personality that he's putting out there? Is it all like, is it purely performance art or is it like hard rock passion? Yeah. And, and then the fact that like settling down, like I would read interviews and be like, man, I think it's like the most complicated answer, which is that it's all of those things. And that, you know, it's, it's almost more comfortable to feel like someone accidentally stumbled into something exotic, but it's like more impressive to realize that no, it's all extremely by design. <laughs> like this guy just is doing something that you've never seen before really on purpose. And it's like, yeah, it's like a very impressive and a little bit daunting, I think, when you're a young artist, kind of like shit, man. Like people yeah. are bringing the heavy, the heavy shit. Similarly, the strokes, like who the fuck, you know, that record is unbelievable to just drop that record out of the blue. Yeah, 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 is also incredible artists, TV on the radio. Mm. So anyway, they were all bands that like more, it was like as they became like, um, as they entered the spotlight, I was just like really impressed. Yeah. Like, fuck man, this is humbling out. So did you almost feel like an underdog in that, in that regard, in the sense that, oh my God, these guys are amazing. How can we compete with this? Well, I never, fortunately for me, I think like the compete thing is a difficult thing that I think a lot of people experience. And it's a difficult matter for your ego Compare and despair, they Mm, say. Absolutely Um, right. And I think for me, I've never been in competition with any of those other peers in the music industry. 
And I feel like that's a little uncommon. I have actually caught a whiff of what I perceive to be a more competitive spirit in some of my peers where it's like, oh, that's interesting. Like I don't feel in competition with anyone, but some people who are hugely successful strike me as being in competition. So I feel like it's not a bad attribute to feel that way. Yeah. But uh, well, not- what happened for me is that I met some people before the band took off that were, there's this book called The Loser, which is a story about a guy who went to a piano conservatory with Glenn Gould. Do you know Glenn Gould? And it's like the story is like how this guy's ego processes the fact that I will never be anywhere near as good as Glenn Gould. And like, how does he accept that and come to those terms? And I met a few people at the tail end of high school that were sort of like that equivalent for me, where I was kind of like, it's like uncomfortable to process, like however much of a chip on my shoulder I have or however much of a special individual I might have felt I was that I was like god damn it like this is somebody who's you know funnier more intelligent yeah. more stylish more interesting more worldly and like what am I going to do with yeah. that information am I going to not be friends with them am I going to sort of like yeah p- pretend that they aren't those things how am I going to like how is my ego going to accept the fact and what I kind of came to terms with and it was like not even easy like it was actually like quite a difficult phase of my life to process like fuck I'm not like in every way the, top the shit of every category yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think what I kind of like came down to at that point, and this is before the band took off, as I say, is that like, you know, I have my garden that I can cultivate and like, that's enough of a entertainment in life and then enough of an aspiration. And I can just celebrate someone over here for having all of their incredible gifts. And like, the only thing I can do is just like try and, uh, cultivate my own gifts as best as I can. And that's plenty. And that's pretty fun. And so like, and there'll be like ways. And so anyway, it's, and it's also, you don't even need to have those conversations because you don't ever need to have begun to compare yourself to other people. You could just always focus on your own shit and not even stress it. But I did stress it. But in stressing it, I kind of got through that. So then when the band started to take off and there's other artists doing very well, I never felt like bad about it or in competition. I just felt like, uh, I, you know, I want to work really hard and kind of have my own success. But but the strokes blew up fucking huge. Yeah, I'd done that work on myself, yeah. Is this is Aww. is this a, is this a birthday cake? We are, we're having a thank you very much. By the way, this is nice, isn't it? We're having an interlude for cake, ladies and gentlemen. I think we should leave this in. Happy and birthday what, to you! <laughs> Happy birthday to you! Happy fiftieth! It's your birthday. <laughs> I'll take that, Paul. Yeah, that looks really good, actually. You know, we've got to keep our strength up. I know that I'm. I always say this, but it, it does become a hostage situation if I'm not careful. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it. Been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show. But my listeners wanted to write the ad for me. And here are some of the things they said. Not your regular juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down.
before we move on to the second night, that's what I was going to say. You, what, what you're saying reminds me of something that I'd read, you said that I quite like, which was, I think somebody was asking you about when Turn on the Bright Lights came out and it was such a fully realised piece, you know, and everybody went crazy for it quite rightly. That You know, how difficult is it to follow a, a record like that, which you did very well. But you said something about, it's a bit like a fingerprint, really. You've created any artist. Mm. That's their statement. They're, they're doing something that's ever so slightly different than anything else that's been done before or will be done again. And so you're quite comfortable in that, knowing that you've done that and that everything else that you do is in that sort of vein, in a sense, isn't it? I mean, I feel like if I'm remembering correctly what I think you're referencing, it might have been a comment in the vein of like sophomore slumps and mm. whether or not, you know, is it hard to live up to your first one? And I think like what it is, is that I don't think it's hard to live up to it, but you can never sort of uh, surprise the world the same way that you did the first time because now your DNA is out there. Yeah. And so now That's there's it. some familiarity with where you're coming from that you can't ever entirely reinvent yourself. Yeah. So everyone's going to know a little bit about, you know, which I think to some people can diminish the impact of their yeah. successive works. But I kind of feel like, hey man, what are you going to do? I know you get the chance to keep doing it, which is phenomenal. Look at Bob. Look at Bobby D. When's Bob Dylan doing this? Uh, is he next week or the week after? He wants to do a Christmas one. Tell him to fuck off. <laughs> I'm busy at Christmas. Okay, so we've we've started with the Dawn Chorus, a brilliant, noisy Dawn Chorus of Sonic Youth. Who should we put on second? Mars Volta. Oh, keeping up the volume. Mars Volta. No, I would say, again, I'm, if I'm remembering rightly, it was either 2000 or 2001 when that at the driving record came out, wasn't it? A relationship of Command and just absolutely loved that record. And, and of course, the Mars Volta sort of come out of that, don't they? Mm -hmm. And I know less about Mars Volta, but tell me a little bit about why they're on at your festival. What, what do they bring to a live situation? I think... Cedric is one of the greatest rock vocalists ever, greatest rock frontman ever. And I think Omar is, you know, like a visionary guitar genius. Just he's crazy what he's, you know, I love, I love how far they pushed it. I love how they went from at the drive-in was like a, you know, big, big success. Mm. Like right before the strokes, they were like the strokes. They were really, really big. Um, one arm scissor is a fucking total banger. Monster, and they were like really blowing up at like either Coachella or South by Southwest. I don't know if Coachella was happening then, but there was like really, you know, they were like fucking slaying it, and then they just broke up, <laughs> like right at the, you know, cresting of the wave of their huge success. They just broke up, and then they split into Sparta and Mars Volta. Mm. Yeah, and Mars Volta. I just remember feeling like it's so experimental. It's like impossibly experimental. It's so so unadulteratedly out there and I just had so much respect for like they don't give a shit about what the norms are like what's popular or anything they're just doing their thing and I felt like the commitment was like incredibly admirable and then their record deal out of the comatorium was just like a real fun process of discovery for me because it's a bit hard to get into at first and then if you listen to it more you like start to hear the sort of um, I don't know the ways that it's like oh these are you know they're you can process these like any other rock song, or right? you know, even and maybe not pop, but like uh, the song structures, like you learn the logic of what's happening, and they become as anthemic yeah. as any other song could be. 
they're not just like tricky music. They're like anthemic. And there's just some genius shit on that record. I love that record. I feel like I need to go back to Mars Volta. I feel like that's... I used to love bands like... Um, around that same time, the sort of annual nose by the Trail of Dead yeah, and people like great. that. Love that band. Incredible live stuff as well. All these mm. bands do, seem to be able to deliver on the big stages, don't they? But just that kind of for the love of the noise that a guitar can make, really. That's yeah, and like the, punk, and like just like crazy energy on stage too, yeah. And you notice by the Trail of the Dead, you used to break all their instruments. That was like their <laughs> shtick for a while. And it was like, that's The manager's just, no. Yeah. No, it's the, not the who all over again. But I was going to say, we're talking a lot about guitars and guitar influence, but hip-hop's your big thing as well, really, isn't mm-hmm. it? I mean, it seemed to me that that was one of the, the major musics for you coming up, as well as things like Joy Division and The Cures. There's this whole, everything from Biggie and Tupac to Wu-Tang Clan was always there, wasn't it? I mean, hip-hop I've been basically exclusively listening to for the last, like, 20 years, yeah. Really? That's, I've not been listening to rock music at all. Is it just because you think it's, there's more innovation going on in that world now? Or? I mean, now I don't think that's really a novel observation. I think 20 years ago when I was first kind of like saying that that's all I listened to, it was still mm. like, yeah, like relative. Like now I think it's just clearly the, the dominant genre and the most influential genre. But I feel like then it was sort of in the wings becoming that. Mm. And it was, yeah, it was like, there's like a lot of, it was a fertile genre. I felt like all the talent, a great amount of talent was moving in that direction. Whereas rock was in a bit of a doldrum of like not being the dominant form of music. I think rock, the reason why the festival, an ideal festival that you asked me to put together, it's going to be probably more rock dominant than hip hop because I have seen some amazing hip hop shows, but I feel like, watching people play instruments live and watching the people that have written the parts play the parts live yeah. is just something very captivating about that. I it's think still rock still got that, hasn't it? It's still yeah, got I don't think rock corner. will go anywhere. I think rock is, you know, yeah, just because I listen to hip hop doesn't mean I'm not, you know, like deeply passionate yeah. about rock, but I do for my headphone listening and my own like driving around in a car, I will listen to Kendrick mm. or 21 Savage yeah. and not to Radiohead. And it's Skinner. Necessarily. And I love, like, Radiohead is one of the, my favorite artists of all time. So it's not, you know, no mm. knocking anybody no. in rock. It's just that what my ear finds to be more like candy yeah. is like hip hop. The, the whole production of hip hop as, as an old man who understands guitars is like a fascinating novel experience to me. I'd love, one day I would love somebody to show me how they do that shit because I haven't got a clue how they do it. I think the caliber of people that are doing it at the top level, like Metro Boomin, I think would probably be almost like frightening if you even could gain some insight into how they do what they do. Or like, because if you think about how much competition there is, like if you realize that I can make a beat on my laptop and everybody can make a beat on their laptop. Mm. So the people that are actually like the real sought after producers at the top of the game are competing with everyone in the world with a laptop and an interest in that genre. So there's a lot of competition. And so I think these are, I think people that poo-poo hip hop is like, it's not even real music. It's sort of like, you're not really, once you do have a love for the genre, you realize like the people making the beats on like a Lil Wayne record are fucking geniuses. Just before I ask you who's on next, this is just that sort of the lull period just after lunch. What do we eat at your festival? What's the ultimate carbohydrate to deliver to the audience member at your festival? She, um... I'm going to go veggie, 
veggie dogs. Mm. Gonna go a little uh, vegan mac and cheese. Mm. And you can throw in some regular mac and cheese. And uh, gonna get some... uh, At Primavera, they had a Thai salad with like some type of fake meat that I've never even heard of that was a bit like seitan. Mm -hmm. And it was great. It was fucking great. (laughs) I I would like you to say that one more time. Fucking great. (laughs) That's good. It's like being at uh, Tea in the Park Festival. I love, yeah, that a lovely fresh Thai salad at a festival. Yeah. Delicious. And, and so we stand out eating it, watching the third act, who, who have to come on after the Mars Volta and Sonic Youth. Yeah. Who's it so, and actually, because I realize like I'm kind of, a lot of my, all of my artists are from bygone eras, uh, I'm going to add some guest appearances in. So oh, the yeah. third artist was Wu-Tang, the entire <sighs> Wu-Tang clan. But we're going to say with guest stars, Kendrick Lamar. Brilliant. And J-Rock and Schoolboy Q. And Twenty One Sauvage. Well, so that's like fourteen people on stage. That's, that's massive, isn't bringing it? Bringing the heat. Yeah. I mean, we've had a lot of Wu Tang chat recently. We had Yanis from Foles talking about his deep love. We probably won't even really get a chance to unpack the the Banks and Steels collaboration with with RZA. I mean, which is is such a brilliant thing. And and again. A lot of people who just know you for Interpol might not even know about it. It's like because it's a total, mm. it's a total divergence, isn't it? And it's it's hip hop rather than rock music. But have you met somebody like Kendrick? By the way, have you have you never met Kendrick? Or? Never met Kendrick. But I do think Kendrick is about as important as like a Bowie uh, or a Bob Marley. I think he's a you know massively important historical yeah. figure of yeah as as. Big and as good as it gets, I think is Kendrick. I think like Wu Tang and working with RZA was a funny thing. Like I was, I remember like trying to explain to my mom. I was like, you, if you go to like RZA's Wikipedia page, it's not going to show you what it's going to show you in twenty years when people are really processing the extent of his achievements and what they meant. Uh, right now, it's like not fully. Yeah. Yeah, it's not. There's not enough said to you know. Praise him. You need I the think. time to give the context of I think how important so. they are as artists. Really. Well, and when you realize, like, what really, and I know now that he's got the the TV show that's sort of breaking it down. But like, when you realize that what he did as a not just as a producer of beats, but getting all of those members to work together was in itself like an unbelievable achievement, just yeah. like in terms of like psychology and leadership, because they weren't all buddies. They weren't even, you know. Friendly, I think some of them might have had some like beef between like Ghostface and Ray and Method Man, and like it's like uh, human resources as well as as being a, a rapper, isn't it, or a producer? You've got to get all these personalities to work. Well, and like if you look at like they, that collective, Ghostface Killer would make most people's top ten greatest rappers of all time lists, and yeah. like main, there's like multiple members in Wu Tang who are among the greatest rappers ever. Yeah. So to get them to be like, I will follow you and share the spotlight with like seven other artists uh, and that's fine with me. All those egos. Yeah, but working so in for, to harmony. him to be able to convince them all, like just follow my vision. And then he went up against record companies and sort of they started their own record company and their own like merch company and sort of you can distribute our record, but we will own it. Like RZA is, you know, did unbelievable things. So I think, and then if you just listen, like so working with him and kind of like he's just got like drum machines everywhere and he'll just like play you a beat that's like the best beat you've ever heard. And he's just got hundreds of them, you know, lying around because he's, yeah, 24-hour genius. So it's... Again, I just think, you know, his accomplishments are not yet fully yeah. grasped or not. I mean, if you're a super fan, you get it. But I think, you know, the public at large is not fully, 
hip to just how important of a person and uh, of an act that group is. Yeah. Well, again, it's just, it's educational really as well, because I think that it's like classical music really to me. Sometimes I have a sort of an introductory knowledge of of certain genres, but there's so much to go at. Yeah. Here you're talking about it makes me think, okay, we've got some work to do here. I mean, I'm only 50. Could have another 50 years to go. You know, whilst we're at the festival, there can be hedonistic places. I know you you don't drink anymore and stuff like that, but back in the day, would it have been an opportunity to hang out with other musicians and to get messy and to... Can you look back with fondness at some of those crazy times? Do you Or do you just shut the door on all that? No, I definitely... Yeah, I, I had a blast. I had a blast with Harmar Superstar at a festival. I remember I got really, really fucked up with a dude from NoFX once. Yeah, loads of partying, man. Yeah, and I, I think, yeah, in, you know, in safe measures, uh, yeah, festivals are a great place to just, yeah, enjoy the sunlight, you know, maybe have some mushrooms, yeah. walk around and see artists. Well, we are in Amsterdam, so anything mm-hmm. is possible. Mm-hmm. We, we, You mentioned enjoying the music in the sun. We're, we're at the penultimate stage now, so we're at the, we're at the sunset moment here um so just before i ask like who would be in your ultimate festival crew who and it could be living or dead it could be friends and relatives it could be elvis and your uncle uh who who would it be that you would like to be watching all this stuff with oh huh watching these artists with man i don't even know if i've ever really thought about like the collective experience of appreciating another artist like that because I don't know if you get much chance to do that. Do you get much chance to just go and be a punter at things? Well, I mean, I'll watch things with my girlfriend, but then I kind of feel like it's a little bit like even... I'm If anyone that loves the artist as much as me, I think it would be enjoyable to share the experience yeah. with. But I feel like, you know, no one wants you to explain to them why what they're seeing is amazing. And I have a tendency to do that. So it's like... Uh, it's you, not going to be yeah. fun for the other person watching the artist <laughs> if they're not as familiar as I am. Yeah. And if it is someone who loves the artist as much as I do, then we'll just watch it together yeah. in silence. You know, smile. I'm sending you on your own. I yeah, think that's maybe probably that's safest. Best. I actually do love watching. I love love going to gigs on my own for that very reason. Speaking of festivals, yeah. So fourth artist on, I had Trans Am, and I'm going to say it's going to be a Trans Am meets Krung Bin. Ooh. They get to share the share the stage in that fourth spot. Because Krungbin are uh, quite quite a new artist, really. I That's was... why I'm trying to keep. I'm trying to get some current yeah. <laughs> artists in here. Yeah, Krungbin is one of the artists that like I've heard them multiple times, and it's I'll, I'll always say, "Who's that? Yeah, what are, what are you listening to right now?" Because that sounds a hundred percent fresh and fascinating and awesome. And then I just saw them play at Primavera, and unbelievable. They're so cool looking, and just that music is. Super fresh. So I celebrate Krongbin. And their drummer is sick. And that's part of one of the things I love about Trans Am is um, Sebastian Thompson is one of the greatest drummers ever. I think we're living through a halcyon time for drumming, actually. Mm. You know, especially in this country, like the, that whole South London jazz scene as well. And you got, you know, some incredible players coming through there, like Ezra Collective and people like that. There's so much incredible musicianship going on now, I think. It's not been there for a while. Apparently there's like a subgenre within jazz that people study now, which is Dilla-influenced. Jay Dilla. Jay Dilla influenced yeah. jazz? Yeah, yeah. Christ, I'm, this is 
It's a proper school day, this for me. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think. It was some music documentary I was watching where like the guy actually called his jazz professor friend and they were talking about, yeah, like a subgenre of, uh, they even have a name of it. Where it's like, yeah, Dilla-influenced jazz. Is yeah. he another artist that you, you really love? One of my all-time yeah. favorites, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's an interesting guy. Like he's got this record, Donuts, which is considered, you know, uh, an absolute masterpiece that he made while he was dying, um, or he died shortly after finishing it. And it's just an interesting thing where, like, even if you're not a hip hop fan, I've played it for people and they kind of get it. Mm. It's like something in the way he manipulates sound that just I put him and RZA and um, Madlib uh, are three producers: Jay Dilla, RZA, and Madlib, who and um, Jamie Moline LP, where there's just like a they just do something with sound that I feel like it's like what Picasso is to painting or something. There's just like an inherent understanding of sonics that makes the way that, and even if it's Jay Dilla working with samples, it's not music he's created. There's something maybe in the EQ or his compression yeah. settings or something that just makes it sound better in your ears than everybody else. And it's really a magical thing. It is to me that the manipulation of whatever it is, it's samples. Will people like RZA or people like Madlib, will, will they introduce like um, actual recorded instruments and as well as, how do, they, how do they make those sounds of those records? It's not all sample based, is it? Well, that's what, I mean, that's why I know RZA is a genius in that sense where you can give him any instrument and he'll make it sound cool. Like he, so he can use live instruments if he chooses yeah. to, or he will use, you know, purely found sounds, which I think is the original early stuff is, yeah, yeah like all sample based. But then I think he might sample a keyboard part, like sample a string and lay it out over a keyboard and play yeah. like a, so early Wu-Tang, I think will have like original string parts based from samples that he's loaded into a keyboard and then played a part yeah. with. Fucking hell. So it's so involved, isn't it? It's, there needs to be more documentaries about this stuff for my Friday nights. Well, and this this brings us up now to the headliner, Amsterdam. We've got a whole night to go here. I mean, this this headliner could play for hours, as far as I'm concerned, no problem. Sonic Youth, Mars Volta, Wu Tang, with amongst others Kendrick Lamar, J Rock, Schoolboy Q, Twenty One Savage, Trans Am, and Krang Bin on the same stage. As they exit, who are they making way for? Who is the last artist? I've historically said that the greatest. There's two greatest rock shows that I ever saw, and one of them was Death from Above 1979 at the Monarch Barfly. Fucking insane. And then the other one that was comparable, which I will give it, they are the headliner, the next artist, because I've seen more of such caliber shows from them, uh, Mogwai. Oh, really? And I think Mogwai at a festival, it just doesn't get better than that. Oh, you know? that's lovely. I guess you know Stuart and the boys, do yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, th you know, when it's one of my faves from them, I don't think, yeah, live music gets more. That's a perfect example, funnily enough, of like, that's a purely rock band, but it hits all the buttons for me that like, when I talk about hip hop being sort of more interesting and stuff, there's something in the the dynamics and the melody and some, something that they do that makes yeah. it like ultra compelling to me. And uh, I'll take some Christmas Steps by Mogwai any day to close a festival. I know what you mean because it's like even that that last record I think it was as the love continues it's just it's these sort of and I put somebody like Kevin Shields in a in a similar category of course or there are similarities aren't there Sonic Youth it's just that 
that use of of sound and and the complexity of it. I actually was at I was at a venue in Glasgow watching Mogwai play, and Brian Ferry was mm. standing next to me wearing. This is absolutely true. I didn't dream this. I wasn't on peyote. He was wearing um, a Parker jacket, and he was watching it with me. And it was a magical experience. And then he turned around and said, "It's very loud, isn't it?" <laughs> And I thought, this is one of the greatest moments of my life. But the, like you said, there's just there's so much in that sound, isn't there, to make the, it the way it is. And it's not just the visceral wall of sound kind of like wallop that they can pack. It's also Stuart's melody writing mm. is just so beautiful, even when it's a quiet you know, yeah. riff. It's just, there's really something there. And I was talking recently about like the my friend Matt from The Walkman, the drummer, who when you watch them play, you just your eyes can't not watch Matt, even mm. when he's playing a very simple thing because his like body is animated in such a way and I feel like um, Stuart with a guitar has a similar quality mm. where like watching him interact with his instrument there's something cosmically kind of like that's what it's about yeah. and that's what music is about right there he's a lightning rod yeah. for the music ah you know the rap by the Walkman just again one of the great one of the great noises in, in music history amen um, well there you go an Amsterdam festival Staged by Paul Banks, Sonic Youth Mars, Volta, The Wu-Tang and Guests, Trans Am and Crangbin, Mogwai to finish. Absolutely brilliant. We've got to call it something. Natalie, any ideas? Song and the Source. Well, I mean, we're struggling, aren't we? Let's be honest. <laughs> we are We are struggling. Uh, what about um, Raid the Banks? Uh, I'm, I'm leaning too heavy on the bad puns of the surname here. I'm thinking, I got, now I got hung up on Sauce because there's something interesting there. Yeah, Special Sauce. So, the lake. Then Down I the sidetracked with Friday the 13th and the lake imagery, <laughs> and that's a mess. And, you know, <laughs> Crystal Lake. Lake. Yeah, we are by a lake. And then there's a vegan theme. Christ like almighty. Health conscious. Uh, how about a sound? Depth Charge. Depth Charge <laughs> Festival. We're having it, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Depth Charge Festival, curated by Interpol's Paul Banks. It's been a, an incredible experience for me. It's been lovely to chat to you. Loved your music for a long time. To get to share cake and coffee with you on my 50th birthday. Let's do it again on my 100th, if it's all right with Let's you. Let's do it. We'll set a date. I'll put it in my calendar. <laughs> okay. Paul, thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you.